Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue of Strategica, the relationship between the United States and Russia. Joining us now is one of the authors in this issue, Ralph Peters. He's the author of 29 books, including works on strategy and military affairs, as well as best-selling novels. He's also a strategic analyst for Fox News, and he was also an enlisted man and officer in the U.S. Army, where he served in infantry and military intelligence units before becoming a foreign area officer and global scout. Ralph, thanks for being with us. Delighted to be with you, and uh, as I say, uh, the whole strategic team just impresses me very, very much, and uh, I'm honored to be a small part of it. And we're honored to have you with us today. So let's start with how we think about Russia, because you think from your piece that there's a deep flaw there. There is, uh, in your telling, a cult of objective analysis in international affairs that prefers to focus on the measurable and the quantifiable, and you think that that's an insufficient way of approaching a country like Russia. Tell us why. Well, it just bewilders me overall that in what is clearly a hyper-emotional age, exacerbated by the Internet's anonymity and the groupthink that often prevails, unleashing uh, hatreds, perversions, prejudices, that our diplomats and the Washington, D.C. think tank culture that supports them, that particular revolving door, still clings to, to... rigid 20th century theories about interstate um, relations that amount to transactional analysis, and they ignore the powerful role of emotion, not only in, in trying to understand today's fraught world, but also in understanding history. For example, and one thing I discuss in the piece, is that when you deal with the Russians, as I have for a very long time, to the point where I just can't deal with them anymore, it's too frustrating, <laughs> you have to understand they are emotion-driven. As brilliant as Russian mathematicians and software writers and hackers may be, they're a fundamental, fundamentally emotional, and we can discuss national character issues, another unfashionable thing later on perhaps, but Russians are driven by jealousy. Paranoia, certainly, but jealousy, especially toward the United States. And it really is a phenomenon of the Bolshevik, then high communist era, then of the Cold War, because as uh, most uh, followers of Strategica know, they they know their history and they know that, in fact, we had very good relations with Russia prior to the uh, um, First World War, uh, the Great War. And in fact, in the 1860s, Russia... Uh, was the first European state to affirm the integrity of the Union of the United States of America, even sent a fleet um, to tour uh, East Coast uh, ports, uh, and one young midshipman was uh, the composer Rimsky-Korsakov, by the way. But anyway, we go back. It's a troubled history. But because of the Cold War's deformations, uh, spiritual deformations, physical deformations, um, the jealousy toward us as... It's just out of control. It is truly irrational in Western terms. Now, of course, prior to that, there was jealousy toward Europe, envy, and jealousy mixed. But nowadays, 
my my experience dealing with Russian diplomats, dealing with the FSB, the follow-on to the KGB, whether in the Kremlin or in back alleys in Moscow in their meeting houses, uh, my experience with their negotiators and their style was that a Russian would gladly cut off his arm if he could cut off your finger in return. Uh, it's utterly irrational, but none by our standards. But nonetheless, if you don't recognize that, that passionate jealousy uh, in the Russian character uh, now directed toward us, you're not going to get very far. And another respect is Vladimir Putin. He bewilders the uh, realpolitik crowd because he does so much that seems to them to be counterproductive. Such well, as, uh, let, let, me, let me ask sure. you a question about that since you bring us to that point because there is a, a provocative assertion in your piece. The sentence just jumps off the page. I'm sure that will make a lot of people pay attention because you write – that Vladimir Putin, and I'm quoting you here, may be the only major world leader in our time who is touched, if darkly, with genius. Wow. Explain that. He is. He's also a buffoon at times. Uh, <laughs> and we tend to see the buffoon and not the genius. But Vladimir Putin, uh, this old KGB officer, <clears throat> had the brilliant insight that eluded the great dictators and tyrants of the 20th century who tried to pry into every last human secret Putin's insight was that you don't need to do that. People do need to blow off steam, and it doesn't matter what they call, what names they call you around the kitchen table or how they complain in the bedroom. And Putin's contact with the Russians, his unspoken compact, but understood by the Russian people, is they can get drunk and say anything they want behind their apartment or, front or, or house front door. They can't take it into the streets. That's the deal. You can blow off steam in private with your friends, crack open another bottle of vodka, but don't bring it into the streets. And so where you see Putin cracking down, he's not trying to pry into people's personal lives. What he is doing is forbidding them to protest publicly or embarrass him publicly. And it's, it's really brilliant because it, it lets his society, and it wouldn't work for other societies, but it lets the Russian society I uh, work for Vladimir Putin. Of course, he's got his weaknesses, too. He doesn't understand economics. But uh, to understand Putin, you also have to understand that he's essentially a bully. And we look at him, well, why, why on earth would he needlessly alienate President Obama, who's giving him everything he wants, a, a strategic arms reduction treaty that is totally one-sided in Moscow's favor, uh, who, who just wants to be his pal? And the answer is, again, it's emotional. I and mean, Putin is... A, is a creature of impulse in many respects, and he's a bit of a sadist, a schoolyard bully, and he just enjoys beating up on President Obama. Plus, Russians are ferociously racist, and Putin struggling, and pretty well, to keep Russia together to pretend at least a great power status in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, not only resents America, but he resents uh, having to deal with a black American president. Ralph, the, the prompt at Strategica asked whether Russia is a friend or a foe or something in between. Your answer to that question, as was Edward Lutwak's when we talked to him, is it depends. It depends on what situation you're talking about. But you suggest in your piece that it doesn't even really make sense to ask this question about Russia as a nation so much as it does to ask it specifically about Vladimir Putin as an individual. Why that emphasis so firmly on him? Well, because – the Russian system is so profoundly different than ours. 
for all the squabbling in Capitol Hill in Washington, we ultimately do come to collective decisions. We're, we're better at the collective than the Soviets were, even though they talked in terms of collectives. But Russia admires, welcomes, embraces, and complains about a strongman. You know, czar, the word czar, comes from Caesar. The, the strong czar was a Russian ideal. They feared the weak czar. Well, then after, after the czarist regime, the Romanovs fall due to the course of the Great War and the, Bolshev- the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution, essentially, you still have strongmen. Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, who's actually the weakest of the strongmen, and so on, Brezhnev, Andropov, and, and all the way down to the end. And a problem they had with, with uh, both Gorbachev and, and Yeltsin um, was that they weren't classic strongmen. They didn't take charge. They didn't take the reins. And so they, they both wind up, wind up losing power. Putin, for all his, to us, buffoonery, uh, fits a classic Russian mold of a, a, a Nostoyashi Mozik, a real he-man, a real strong man. And, and they eat it up. The, the, the ridiculous sh- shirtless selfies we, you know, he, he sees him take. <laughs> really, middle-aged Russian women swoon over this guy. Plus, he doesn't drink. I mean, they love him for the women, love him for that, too. But, but basically, uh, Vladimir Putin is a strong czar. And people in Russia, there's such insecurity that they welcome a strong czar. Now, of course, there are many exceptions to that. Uh, the liberal intelligentsia in the cities, etc., but make no mistake, when you get out to what used to be called the Chorny Narod, basically the peasantry beyond the cities, the common people, um, Putin's a hit. Well, that gets us to that dynamic that you started talking about earlier in the program about the issue of national character. So give us a sense of the role that, that culture plays here. You write in the piece at Strategica, um, again quoting you, the alternately effervescent and benighted Russian soul that haunts the country's literature is very dark when drawn onto the international stage, end quote. Uh, why is that? There does seem to be a distinctive Russian character uh, in international affairs, also at home, that is just markedly different from virtually any other country. Yes, cultura et subba. Culture is fate. And of course, it is terribly unfashionable and politically incorrect to speak of national characters. Right. And yet we recognize them. I mean, who can deny? The Southern Italians are different than Swedes uh, in their values and their approach to life. And, and, you know, you might prefer to take your vacation in Tuscany, but you want the Swede to be your banker <laughs> and, and uh, or your, your uh, financial advisor. But at any rate, they're, you know, they're obviously talking about national character has its limits because ultimately humans are individuals. But the study of human collectives, how collectives behave is really uh, the last great unexplored sphere of human nature for me. And when you look at the Russian character, there is unquestionably a pervasive Russian character, an enduring one. Um, I'll take, for instance, the, the, the role of the secret police. Um, those who don't know the history might imagine this was invented by the Bolsheviks and the communists. Well, it wasn't. Today's FSB goes back through the KGB to the NKVD and various other alphabet soup organizations under the Soviets and, and Bolsheviks who go back, of course, to the Cheka, who go back to the Tsarist Okhrana, and you back through the Tsarist Okhrana secret police, all the way back to Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, and his Oprichniki, his 
his terrifying Gestapo in the 16th century and early 17th, and beyond that, much of it's lost in the in the, the murk and haze of history. But the Russians have just, well, other countries have certainly had intelligence op- operations and uh, interrogation methods and spies, of course. The the pervasive nature of spying and suspicion in Russia and the long, virtually uninterrupted existence of secret police-type organizations is, is just very different, and paranoia feeds on paranoia. And now, two, of course, history matters. The Russians, with no virtually no defensible borders, they've been invaded repeatedly from all sides back into the days of the Scythians and the murk of human history. Um, but what it has left them, it has left them with the people, left us with the people, who, while they have their creative geniuses, uh, as do most human collectives, nonetheless they also have this deep streak of paranoia, this profound streak of jealousy toward the West, this tendency to retreat. Uh, when faced with the East, they they see themselves as Westerners, and faced with the West, they see themselves as East Easterners. And they're really this hybrid culture that doesn't quite fit in either the Eastern or Western world. Um, and without belaboring the point, I would just say that if you think games theory is going to get you through negotiations with Russians, or for that matter, Nigerians or Argentines, uh, you're going to miss the boat, and our diplomats do. You've got to accept that in some form, at some level, national character exists. And nowhere so obviously in my mind, as with the Russians. There's this notion that you, you hear sometimes that when you get right down to it, for all of the bluster of a figure like Putin, that the Russians are at some essential level actually afraid of us. What, what do you make of that analysis? Well, I, I think fear has been whipped into them for political advantage, um, and it used to frustrate me. The, the notion that we would want to somehow occupy Russia, or take, they have nothing we want. We don't even need their natural gas. And that's, that's, that's frustrating for them, too. I mean, there's really nothing they can hold over our heads except aging nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, why on earth would an American be jealous of Russia? I mean, that's one thing, advantage that the United States has. We, we're privileged. We're lucky. We've been so fortunate, although we've had our long, long struggles on many fronts. But Americans tend not to be jealous of foreign peoples. Now, we might look at, you know, um, La Dolce Vita and think, oh, those Italians, what a wonderful lifestyle. But, but we don't rush off to, to, to live in Italy where you can't get a phone connected for six months. Uh, we're not a jealous people by nature. And uh, so we're the, the polar opposite of the Russians in that respect. We don't understand them. But frankly, they don't understand us either. So... In talking about the relationship between our two countries, let's turn to public policy and how this analysis bears on that because there are – you mentioned Syria earlier. There are differing interpretations of the role that Russia played there in staving off our military intervention. Some people saying that Putin rolled President Obama. Some people saying that he sort of pulled his chestnuts out of the fire. I suppose we can entertain the thought that those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive analyses as well. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. How is the Obama administration doing in in handling the relationship with Russia overall? And you know, what, have they been stronger on some areas than others? If you were brought in to the Oval Office on this topic, uh, what would your advice be? Benign neglect. Um, <laughs> obviously, you have to engage with the Russians on some issues, 
But what has not worked for the United States has been our eager beaver approach, which goes back to 1989-1991 when the Soviet Union was coming apart. It was tragic for me when I was still in uniform working as a, as a Russian foreign area officer for the Army. I would go to our meetings in Moscow, various meetings at various levels, from the semi-clandestine to the completely open, and it was incredibly frustrating to me because the Americans were falling all over themselves to just give the Russians anything they want. We love you. You're our friends. Ignoring the Russian character, ignoring Russian suspicions. And the Russian reaction is when you just rush in and want to give them something, they think there must be a plot. Something's wrong here. Right, right. But the era of Strobe Talbot, basically, in the Clinton administration, when Russia could do no wrong, when Russia was going to take its, great, its, its, its place of greatness in human history again, blah, 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 and the Russians couldn't turn that ship around overnight, and they still hadn't. I mean, they've got such deep issues. I personally, although I'm frustrated with Russians, I, I remain a, a, a hopeless fan of Russian Golden Age and Silver Age literature, painting, music. Um, it's a shame we don't know Russian painting better. I mean, it's just absolutely brilliant work, um, far beyond the, the known names. Um, but, but at any rate... Stalin not only killed, what, 30, 40 million Russians, we don't know that, with his wars and concentration camps, the gulag. Uh, what we do know is he killed off the intelligentsia or drove them out of the country. And so in addition to destroying so much of Russian society, although he could not, even he could not destroy the deep culture, he destroyed Russian art literature. And it's interesting to watch Russians try to come back today uh, I mean, the films I make, once in a while you'll see a, guru, uh, a profoundly incisive one like uh, Cargo 200, Gru's Vesti, but that's very rare. Most of them are just to us very arch and goofy and, and silly. But, you know, when you exterminate your intelligentsia, um, you're not left with much. And it's funny, funny, I had a conversation that was very revealing to me um, with, with a Russian woman back in the mid-90s. I, you know, all, the Russian men were showing the cliche of drunken louts, and, and I asked her, how can, how can you, Russian women, how can you cope with these guys? And their answer was, well, what choice do we have? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but at any rate, um, you know, I, I, I want the Russians to do well, and they don't understand that. They, don't, they can't imagine that Americans would want them to do well. But I wish them well. Uh, but they've got to you know, overcome the snakes in their own metal gardens, and we can't do it for them. Well, that's that's precisely the question that I will ask you to conclude because it touches on uh, another point in your piece. You write, it's unlikely that the U.S. and Russia will become close allies in our lifetimes, but there look to be points of strategic convergence, and we need not be enemies. We should appear willing but never appear weak. In the end, though, it's up to Russia to deal with its own geostrategic neuroses and psychoses. Chances of Russia doing that work anytime soon? Well, Russia's not going to work through all its problems in, in, our, in my lifetime, certainly. Um, these, these roots go very, very deep. But again, um, when it makes sense to cooperate with Russia, we should cooperate with Russia. And sometimes we have to give a little bit, uh, but you don't sell the farm. You don't give everything away just to get a treaty, as President Obama did in the, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, which gave away important U.S. dual-use systems 
uh, in return for the Russians scrapping junk they were getting rid of anyway and couldn't afford the old stuff. Uh, you don't do giveaways. Transactional in this case, I mean, you understand the Russians on an emotional level, but deal with them transactionally. Uh, combine the best of both approaches. And certainly, where we can cooperate um, and where the Russians don't make unreasonable demands, absolutely. If there's a time when the Russians really need something, and we can support that without, with, at small cost to ourselves, fine. The important thing is not to be the patsy, not to be the dummy who is always, always giving and getting nothing in return. Because if you let them, the Russians will take and take and take and take and laugh at you. All right. My thanks to our guest, Ralph Peters, author, veteran, Fox News contributor, and member of the Military History Working Group at the Hoover Institution. You can read his piece and those of other members of the group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sanek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.